This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on the phone is Barry Averich. Barry, thank you for joining me today. A pleasure, Clay. Uh, one of the quotes that I first saw very quickly when I was doing some research on you was, uh, I don't care what you do with your life, but make sure you never blend in. And it, is that Correct. really something your dad said to you? He did. He did. Uh, he, my father was in uh, the uh, ladies' clothing industry, uh, and so he understood the alchemy of what a perfect uh, lineup, uh, lineup of clothing uh, was, the collection for the season. And so he understood that every item, every blouse, every dress, had to stand out and never blend in, and that was his his advice to me. Uh, and again, you can choose uh, in life. Some people like to be in the background, uh, and that's fine. But he said he just felt that you really needed to make an impression, and that same advice was uh, imparted on me years later in a different way by uh, Robert Evans, the recently deceased, you know, Hollywood producer uh who said that you know you you know you decide in life whether you want to be the background and the foreground and he said you walk into a room and and if people say nice tie then you haven't been noticed uh (laughs) and uh that was his own way i won't do the impression but of 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 evan saying it but it's been good advice yeah yeah what i'm curious what did your father teach you about work ethic uh, my father's work ethic, they weren't necessarily life lessons beyond the don't blend in, but, but what I took away was his extraordinary, um, maybe an imbalance, but his extraordinary balance of work and, and, uh, and personal time. So he worked so hard. He was on the road constantly. He would leave Monday morning at 4 a.m. on the road selling his his collection of, of ladies sportswear be back Thursday night exhausted crawling out of the car uh, and then he would have his his weekly gin game with his buddies and and then and then the balance of the weekend was really you know him uh, detoxing and and spending time with the family uh, and I never considered him a part-time father he you know he, he was a sort of a larger-than-life character but he understood the balance of, of having um, some pleasure uh, in his life from the loyalty of friendship and his family. And, and I've always lived the same way. I work extraordinarily hard. I sleep four hours a night. But, uh, and I am in a lot of ways, you know, a, a weekend father and husband. But I don't think my family would have it any other way. Too much time with me. Uh, would be too much. <laughs> what? Well, I, I do want to talk about. I want to talk about your sleep regimen because I had read that as well. I'm curious, also, what your parents taught you about kindness. Well, they were, you know, they. My mother was, uh, and my mother's still alive on, on the on the threshold of 92, and she wow. was incredibly. Uh, she was a giver. Uh, you know, she did not seek the spotlight as her son did, uh, and does, and, and, you know, and even her late husband, my father, you know, did not look, he was not show business, but he liked being the center of attention. My mother was the opposite, but she was a 
behind the scenes, uh, huge uh, volunteer and philanthropic and, and really sort of was about, she was a giver, constantly giving and giving and giving to others. Uh, and so, you know, that taught me something in terms of the give back, there's no question, uh, and, and being um, uh, consider of others. Now, neither my mother or father suffered fools easy. They didn't have time for nonsense or, or chit-chat uh, on that end of it. I, I mean, I, I remember my mother getting phone calls from people, and she would hold the phone, you know, six inches away and say, I'm not even interested in this story. And I go, but they can hear you. And she goes, no, no, they're talking. But I mean, you know, she, she, they were both very creative, and there's no question that they instilled a, a, a tremendous love of culture on me. They had their record collection of where I learned at the feet of giants from uh, oh, from Woody Allen records to Lou Jacoby uh, to, you know, Sarah Vaughn and Billie Holiday and, and Tony Bennett and Sergio Franchi and all these people, foreign names I'd never heard of, but I, I was, I, I went, I could, I could quote obscure stand-up comedians that they, they had albums of that you have to really be an aficionado of the Miami and New York scene to know who they were. But that's where I learned a sense of timing of comedy, a sense of what worked. I mean, my father's greatest lesson was, and I don't know where he pulled this from, because again, he was not in show business, but we would go to movies as a child. And my father said to me, watch the screen, or sorry, watch the audience, not the screen. Mm. And I, and I say, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, look how they're enjoying, you know, the film and, and look, you know, the power of what a movie can do. But what he was really teaching me, which was a massive master class for me later on, was that how to look at my own films and, and judge when an audience is bored, uh, they don't get a plot point, uh, the, the pacing is off. And so for, you know, for a career of nearly 50 documentaries plus, uh, I, I always sort of screen my films and watch how people are reacting before I lock a picture and know. And, and I, I really sort of attribute that to my father. Well, I have to I have to commend you on that because the most recent documentary I watched of yours was David Foster off the record and you really captured an emotional essence in there that it was just so it felt like I was in the living room with him even through all of the clips and all the shots and everything you put into that documentary and that's 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 the one that I was like, "Oh my goodness, this guy's you're really good at what you do." <laughs> yeah, it, it, well exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. What were your What were your entertainment dreams growing up? Um, I you know I, I just I was reading Variety, the Hollywood trade paper by the age of eight, and I was I knew I was interested in the business. My father had put me into a uh, sort of a local uh, uh, vaudeville. Uh, variety show, so I got a sense of makeup and the spotlight and uh, and and applause, and so I, I was interested in the business uh, and how it worked. I mean, you know, Friday night we'd gather for dinner, and I would be bringing up the grosses of a film, which no one knew what I was talking about, but I was fascinated by it. So I don't I don't know that I had a clear path for it. I was lucky enough that you know I didn't grow up saying, gee, I have to make movies, but I was. I was making short films 
from the age of 17. And, uh, and, but I, I can't say definitively that I, I, you know, I, I dreamt to be the next Steven Spielberg or, you know, or, or Martin Scorsese. I didn't think that I had anywhere near that talent. Uh, and I did not, uh, you know, uh, I, I knew that given our, you know, we were not wealthy people that go that the path of going to UCLA, you know, or, or, or Caltech or, or, you know, Columbia or anything in film was never going to be in my cards. But I had an uncle who at the age of 12 sat me down. I worked for him in the summers and, and uh, he was a printer uh, who had dreams of being a publisher. And he said to me, you're going to starve in the film industry. Uh, and, primarily in Canada, because in Canada in, in the 70s, there was not much of an industry. Uh, there was the National Film Board, which was, you know, a, a, a government-funded film institute that was making films about the gestation period of the beaver and, uh, and uh, log, uh, logging and things like that. Right. And there just wasn't much. And, and yet there were some filmmakers out of Quebec that were coming together, and, uh, uh, but not much. And so he said to me, you really want to think about the advertising industry and, and also, at the same time, try to make film. Uh, and, you know, he put a, a September issue of Vogue in front of me and said, look at all of these ads. All of these are money. All of this is where the industry is. You can write and you're creative. And this was at the age of 12. And so that's what I really did and I have done for 35 years is that I have been in advertising and I've made movies simultaneously and I haven't given one of them up. Uh, and both have complemented my trajectory in that my clients in the advertising industry have loved my filmmaking and storytelling ability. And my uh, uh, and in the film side, of I've understood how to market a film. Uh, you know, one of my clients, you know, for, for decades released films, everything from Lord of the Rings to Chicago to the Twilight films to early films would pump up the volume of Christian Slater and Chicago, all kinds of stuff. So I understood the principles of marketing film. So that's a talent and a skill that's been helpful in, in certainly the, my own film production. So it's been pretty blissful. Yeah. Well, that was, that's the part that really, really excited me because I was, again, in the research, I was finding a lot of the marketing background and I'm curious if we could start with talking about the Madison and Vine strategy. Yeah. Anything you're willing to add on to that? And then I want to jump well, into the course line. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the Madison and Vine came out of the fact that I, I started to work for an ad agency in Toronto called Echo. Uh, and Echo, in 1989, had figured out that Hollywood and, and big business could work together. Uh, and, and CAA was just starting to do that under uh, uh, Michael Ovitz and Ron Meyer were doing deals representing Coca-Cola, uh, getting into the entertainment industry. And so as an ad agency, we did that. Uh, you know, we had the Rolling Stones that were doing sponsorship deals in 89 with Sprint uh, and Budweiser. And we had Coca-Cola sponsoring concert series uh, and uh, others sponsoring tennis matches and things like that. And so that's where we found that Madison Avenue and, and, and Hollywood and Vine were coming together to become partners. And it really was the survival of our ad agency to say, you know, if you had an ad agency that was 100% entertainment, 
it's risky. But if you could somehow have corporate clients, which allowed us an extension into their own business by creating the birth of entertainment sponsorship, we were the first ones. We created American Express Front of the Line, which became, in the U.S., American Express Card Select, which gave card members in Canada and the United States the opportunity to get preferential access to tickets to concerts and Broadway and then eventually film yeah. screenings. And so it was, a, it was a, a huge, and we were the first ones to go out in the U.S. with Paul Simon, with the Paul Simon tour at the time in the early 90s. And that gave birth to American Express, an explosion with them getting into the entertainment industry, which really came out of our agency. What was what was it like landing the uh, Toronto stock TSX? Because I knew I was reading that that was a really big, uh, you know, collection. Well, for you guys. I had a friend uh, named Robert Patillo who was sort of a legendary uh, um, communications guy who ended up becoming uh, the head of communications and marketing for the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is the equivalent of the New York Stock Exchange, but obviously based in Canada. It's where you know it's, it's the premier stock exchange in Canada. Uh, and he got there and did an agency review uh, because they were going to be launching their 150th year and needed an ad campaign, uh, which included a sponsorship of the Olympics at the time, the Summer Olympics. Uh, and he put the, the business up for review and put out what's called an RFP, a request for proposal. And, uh, we, um, uh, and we pitched and won. And... Uh, it was revolutionary at the time because uh, we were known as an entertainment ad agency, certainly with sponsorship chops, but the win over blue chip agencies at the time, you know, uh, the big ones, the, you know, the Young and Rubencom and, and the Ogilvy and Mader type agencies at the time was outrageous. And I know when we won, it was a headline and, and I know the, people that ran those, those kinds of agencies that pitched were outraged because <laughs> why, was the, why was the business going to us? But, right. you know, we were always the underdog, but that could get it done faster, better, and in a more entertaining way because I've, I've looked at ad campaigns like a movie trailer, like a commercial. Uh, you know, I, I'm not in the package goods business of trying to build shelf life uh, and, and uh, brand of voice and shelf uh, I'm not, I'd never be hired to, to market soup, but at the end of the day, or shampoo, but at the end of the day, I knew, uh, that I, I, you know, that we could, we could be, we'd do a better job than most other products. Is there a particular marketing campaign that you're most proud of or one that stands out in your mind in a particular way? There's really a lot. I mean, you know, there, there's, I, I worked as the, uh, ad agency for, the Toronto, for the Toronto International Film Festival for uh, 15 years and creating their campaigns and trailers was a big deal because it was the halcyon day of where Toronto had surpassed Cannes Film Festival as, 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 a, as the largest film festival in the world, probably second to Cannes in prestige. But I, I was very proud to work on those campaigns and really do some, make some change on that. And then also... Um, we brought the Pan Am Games in 2015 to Toronto, a games that nobody really knew of or cared because you know the Olympics, you don't know the Pan Am Games. And so bringing them to Toronto and creating a, 
uh, a brand, uh, an emotional brand for the game, a connection to the city where it was sold out, was was, uh, was certainly thrilling for me. The um, the combination here between your you know filmography right and also working in advertising, what was the what was the comeuppance with with directing, producing, and writing? Was that almost simultaneous, or did that come a little bit later for you? Um, ask that question again. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, what was the combination of doing your your filmography with advertising? What was that balance for you? Were those um, about uh, well, the same time? I, 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 if I if I think if I stop to think about it, then all the balls that are being juggled in the air fall on the floor. <laughs> I don't, I can't answer that. Okay. it just happens. I don't sleep a lot. Sure. I'm able to simultaneously work on everything at once. My documentaries. I would generally schedule uh, my um, travel and film shoots around the world on long weekends uh, and, and, and intense long weekends or at night. Uh, and so I somehow manage it. I never get the beat. I mean, my first partner at Echo was constantly outraged that I was making films while, you know, running an ad agency with them. And, and I would always say to him, what what are you what what is what deadline have I missed? What complaints have you got from a client? What account have we lost? And the answer was none, none, none. And so there was nothing he can say other than being annoyed that I had you know a, uh, a, a another job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's no, that's so interesting. the The four hours of sleep. Do you ever need to catch up on sleep, or is it really four hours every night of the week? That's all you need. More or less. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm getting older, and so you can it, you'll catch up by Friday. I'm I'm exhausted, but I I still don't. Whether I get in bed or not at um, eleven, twelve, or two, I don't sleep. Yeah, I go through. I can fall asleep watching a film, and then when I get into bed, my head then automatically goes to solving problems mm. and making lists, uh, and so that's endless tossing and turning and i've never uh, i'm always je i'm not jealous of people who sleep i'm jealous of people who have the courage to take a supplement uh -huh. which i'm convinced that i i will not wake up from so i've never uh -huh. i've bought them i've bought um cbd oil and tablets and gummies and right. all kinds of crap i've never it all it all sits in a drawer <laughs> <laughs> not yet <laughs> do you do you meditate? No. Okay. No, I have somebody begging me to try that. Really? And uh, I, 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 it's the same thing with hypnosis. I just won't let my brain go there. Okay. All right. What are your what are your what are your views on relationships in the entertainment industry? Business relationships. What does that mean? Um. Making friends. I want to use the word networking, but that often to me sounds a little little cheap. But uh, basically, networking, making friends, having those connections, keeping relationships going among other people in advertising and, and film. Is there? Are, do you have any views on that? Um, you know, I look. I I think like anything in life, uh, you know, uh, friendships and relationships come in many different colors. They have expiry dates. Uh, you know, you're, I'm constantly surprised 
in a good way and a bad way about degrees of loyalty and shades of, of, uh, of personalities on that end of it. I mean, you know, uh, one of the things that Robert Evans once said to me is that, you know, what, what distinguishes Hollywood from any other uh, place in the world is that, you know, Hollywood, you get stabbed in the front versus the back. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, um, the, the, uh, the other thing that David Brown, the legendary producer of Jaws and The Sting, said to me, he was in one of my docs, and he said to me, Hollywood is the only place in the world where you can die of encouragement. Uh, and I, I, and I didn't know what that meant until I started going to Hollywood to pitch projects, you know, in, in, uh, the eighties, late eighties. And, and I would, I would come out of a meeting at, at a studio or at an agency, uh, talent agency. And I would call my mother and go, ma, they loved it. This is going to be great. I, 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 and then of course you'd never hear anything again, uh, or things would sit in, you know, in development for forever. So, uh, a little crazy. Yeah. How, how have you gotten better with moving forward from that? You know, like uh, asking for things, negotiating, but also keeping yourself moving if others aren't pulling their weight. Well, look, I'm happy with a fast yes or no. Uh, so if a project, I don't suffer through a project for a thousand years of gestation. If, if it's not going, it's not going. Mm. But I generally, you know, I, I test out the project with various investors and funders before I invest a lot of time into developing it. If I think that there's runway, then off I go. For you now, with uh, your schedule during the given pandemic, I'm curious if you're willing to give us a glimpse into what a day looks like for you, how you how the day is so broken up, so to speak. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean... There, I, I start, well, again, my brain is always going. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I start my day very early. I, I'm generally, I like working early and going in on the weekend to catch up on uh, tons of emails. And then I usually leave the weekend to um, uh, the creativity in terms of writing pitches, working on scripts, working on tone boards and so the, the, the weekend is specifically Sunday for me is really a day of super quiet during the pandemic uh, where every day is blurred into one day um, uh, that that you know that that's allowed me way more time to be creative I've realized that you cannot isolate your imagination so even though you have isolated yourself you still keep working and so my day is different every day. It's, it's, it's the only thing that's really changed is, you know, the plethora of lunches and dinners during the week, uh, which are now starting to pick up a bit because, you know, being in Toronto, things are much better than they are in the U.S. And so things are, yeah. uh, we've gotten on top of this. And so the social activity is starting to ramp up again. So I'm, I'm going back to that. But that's, you know, there's no sort of set day, but it's, it's every aspect is, is you know, is, is, searching, developing, researching, and, you know, and writing down, uh, I mean, as a documentary filmmaker, you walk up and down the street with new ideas for projects. Yeah. Are there any, are there any most gifted books or standout books that you enjoy? 
Well, I read biographies, and so I read a lot of, uh, you know, um, Hollywood biographies, and I like all of them from, you know, from uh, uh, the Mogul series of books to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, creative books from creative people that have written those books, too. But I also like, you know, I read a lot of crime thrillers that specifically Michael Connelly and Scott Thoreau, because I just like the way they, uh, the arc of their stories and, and the construction uh, of, of a storytelling. So I like those a lot. Uh, you know, I don't read a lot. I don't read a lot of novels, but I, I do read a lot of crime thriller and biography. Are there changes you've made that have increased positivity and decreased negativity in your life? <laughs> no, I, I no, I thrive on both. Okay. I mean, my wife will always say that you know she's amazed at you know how quickly I can deal with uh, the negative, but I process it uh, and deal with it uh, and blow it out and 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 move on. Uh, um, uh, and, and quickly on that end of it. I mean, my own mother, I had a situation, uh, seven years ago where a partner, uh, uh, just completely destroyed a company we were working in work that we had, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of misappropriation and horrendous business practices. And I literally had to turn that around in three days uh, leave and start a new company and, and, it, and, and he just destroyed everything. And, but, and my mother was like, I, I can't understand. I wrote about it in my book and she said, I couldn't understand how you could walk and breathe during that. And I, you know, you just have to roll with stuff and deal with it. I'm not, I don't soak. I process things, uh, and figure out a solution. Uh, and sometimes it's really bad. Uh, and, and, you know, but you, but you do, I do recognize that unlike, um, uh, anything else in life that it's like the news cycle. It's, it's a headline in your life on Monday, uh, by Tuesday you processed it. And by Wednesday, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> no, yeah. you, you move on. You do. You do. You really do. Uh, final two questions here. Um, do you have a favorite failure or apparent failure that set you up for success? Hmm. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with failure. Although, you know, I'm not necessarily somebody who subscribes to the, you know, the, uh, you know, failure builds your character. Fa failure makes you stronger. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, to a certain degree it does, but you know, I, I don't, I, I've been very lucky to the point where if somebody said you have 24 hours to live, uh, I'm fine with that. Uh, I've, mm -hmm. I've done most of everything that I want to do. I'm still creative. My mind's still functioning. And so it is what it is. I, I think if anything, you know, the defining failure was, you know, seven years ago, having an ad agency that I built and having a partner destroy it through greed, uh, malice and incompetence. Uh, and I, I, and, and literally because I'm the one with the profile, you know, the, the weight of that failure was on my shoulders and I had to tell my story and rebuild quickly, which I did. But thanks to the loyalty of, of incredible friends, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and clients, I survived. And so that did teach me, uh, certain lessons on that end of it, but sure. a lot of that skill set was it was you know i felt i had in terms of processing you know horrendous negativity yeah 
Yeah, you just you keep moving forward. That is correct. Um, final question. Uh, billboard quote. Metaphorically speaking, is there a word or a phrase that you would have put on a billboard for millions of people to see? It can be a quote. Yeah, I mean, um, aside from don't blend in, if I'm going to pick another one, uh, it, it and I've always said this, is that um, rich is money and time is wealth. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if you've got the time to, uh, in your life to have, again, the, the business as well as the pleasure and you leave yourself that time and that's important. I, now when I travel for business or when I used to for all this crap, yeah. I would always, I now build in a certain amount of time to relax, uh, let my mind, uh, you know, travel a little bit and, and work it and recharge. And so, that's where, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but, it, you know, if you don't enjoy your time and the luxury of time, then you're not wealthy. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Barry, thank you for taking this time with me today to, you know, deep dive a little bit into your life. I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime. My pleasure, Clay. Keep in touch. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Barry Averich. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 